Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. My name is Cameron Moyer. My guest this week is Dr. Inbar Levy, Senior Lecturer at the Melbourne Law School. Inbar has previously taught disputes and ethics and legal theory, as well as a law master's course on law and psychology. Inbar's academic specialisation is in the intersection of law and psychology, particularly studying how observable psychological phenomena impact decision-making in legal contexts such as civil procedure. During a conversation, Inbar and I talked about how she entered academia after serving in the Israeli Defence Force, how AI will or will not impact the law, why civil procedure is something we can all find interesting, and how to make better ethical decisions. It was a really fascinating conversation to have, with so many good bits that I couldn't even edit out my mistakes. There's a lot to learn from what Inbar says, and I think you'll get a lot from listening to her. So, without further ado, here is Inbar Levy. Inbar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, so how did you come to study law in the first place? Um, well, being that our topic today is law and psychology, I'm, I'm going to do what the psychologists always do, and um, I blame my parents. Uh, so now, when I was growing up, I had two summer jobs as a teenager. One was in the kibbutz pool close to my house in Jerusalem, and my job there was to stand at the top of the water slide and tell the kids when they can go uh, down the slide you know, to avoid collision and injury. It was a super fun job. And uh, my second job was as a secretary at my father's small law firm, which was also in Jerusalem. Uh, and I was, I mean, I was only printing letters and observing everything uh, that went down there with clients and cases and so forth. I didn't have any big responsibility, but I think it really influenced me and triggered my interest uh, in law. And when I came to choose what to study, I remember sitting down at the kitchen table at home, kind of filling out the form for uni and uh, law and psychology seemed like a good enough option. Um, I have to say that looking back, it was a split of a moment decision. It could have easily been something else like, you know, architecture that I liked at the time or, uh, economics. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it could could have definitely ended up in a totally different place. I, I really believe that it doesn't really matter what you choose as long as you have some initial interest and then just work really hard and go with it all the way. Um, kind of like uh, what you know, Lewis Carroll said in Alice in uh, Wonderland, if, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I think that's very powerful. But um, yeah, that's what I chose, and um, here I am. Yeah. Um, do you think the legal or academic culture in Israel or um, other places that you've studied, so US to UK, compared to Australia, is different in any way? Mm. I mean, definitely. Where should I start? Um, <laughs> it's interesting because historically, both the Australian and Israeli legal systems originated in the English legal system, you know, for historic reasons. And yet today, my feeling is that there are more parallels between the US system and the Israeli one. Uh, well, there is still a strong connection between Australia and the UK. Um, I mean, we would need a whole week just to try and map these differences. But I would say that from my experience in academic institutions, at least, uh, in all of these countries, I think there is value in having diversity of experiences. I personally learned something else from each jurisdiction. 
for example, when I think about Israel, I learned, uh, or I think I learned not to be afraid and speak up in class and in uh, seminars, because in the Israeli culture, there is no, um, no hierarchy, and there's also no shame, yeah, for better and for worse. People are very comfortable, sometimes uh, you could say even too comfortable to express themselves. And so it's very easy to develop your legal thinking, even as a student. I mean, to have this uh, completely free exchange of ideas. Well, uh, in the UK, at least my feeling was, maybe it was also, you know, because English wasn't my first language, uh, was that people could be sometimes wary of participating before they fully develop their thoughts and um, they would speak up very eloquently and kind of elegantly, uh, which was beautiful, but just kind of like a different experience. The U.S. is uh, probably closer to Israel, in my opinion, in that way, in terms of kind of people feeling uh, free to speak up. And Australia is more informal comparing to the UK, I would say. And, and I think that's wonderful, by the way. Um, interestingly, in Israel, we drive on the right side of the road. Well, in Australia and the UK, um, it's obviously the left side. But the trains in Israel uh, are still on the left side because of the British mandate there from, the 19, um, from 1917 till 1948. So here's a yeah, funny fact, fun historic fact for you there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we could talk about the differences all day. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't keep you on that then. <laughs> um, so what did you do after you finished studying? After I finished studying law? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, not what you would imagine. <laughs> the day after I finished uni, not even, I still had a few exams left. I uh, was in uniform doing my... Uh, military officers course in the middle of the Israeli desert. So in Israel, there's a draft military service. It's normally at the age of 18. Uh, by the way, as far as I know, it's the only army in the world in which women are uh, obligated to serve as well. So I studied law before my mandatory military service. And I did a special course in which you studied uni before uh, being recruited. And after uni, I spent almost four years in the army as a military lawyer. Um, then a day after I left the army, I was in Oxford, but that's um, a different story. So I didn't really celebrate uh, finishing uni. I only had a, a bit of a party when I, I started my PhD in England. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what did you do in the Israeli Defense Force? So generally, um, my unit was called uh, MAG, so the Military Advocate General, and the, um, that unit is responsible for implementing the rule of law within the Israel Defense Force. And again, very generally, it has uh, two main roles, uh, an advisory role, meaning to provide legal advice during warfare, for example, and it also has a military persecution unit and a military uh, defense role. So prosecuting uh, soldiers for um, different acts, whether these are uh, disciplinary or uh, criminal. And I was in the international law uh, department. So I've done mostly humanitarian international law. So I'm guessing after you, um finished your service, you then decided to 
going to academia. Is that right? Uh, yes. So I was still in the uh, military and there was an opportunity to go to England, to go to uh, Oxford. And um, I applied, never thought I, I would get in. And yeah, I got in and um, kind of finished my contract with the army and uh, went to England. Yeah, right. Um, so what um, prompted you to do that? Well, I always love uh, studying and I was I remember being really curious about legal developments and about behavioral issues. I mean, even while I was in the army, I was waking up at 5 a.m. every day. I was finishing work really late at night. And even then I was uh, eager to continue doing research and um, be connected to the university, kind of maintaining my connections with the university. I mean, I was barely sleeping and still uh, chose to spend my spare time doing more research. It sounds a bit crazy when I think about it uh, now, but I mean, I must have liked it. Otherwise, I would have slept more, would have watched some trash TV or I, I don't know what. Um, so I still try to write a little bit and keep up to date with um, uh, new papers. And I really remember sitting in seminars, listening to new ideas and getting uh, really, really excited. I, I, I just enjoyed it. Um, Though I have to say, I didn't know I wanted to be in academia when I just started uni. Um, I kind of fell in love with it and uh, went with it. Uh, it. It took some time, um, but I, I did enjoy it um, from uh, early days, uh, you could say. Um, so I guess I'll jump into what became your academic um, specialization, which is the interaction between law and psychology. So how does um, psychology interact with the study of law? Wow, so uh, that's a great question. I don't think we could cover it uh, in this podcast, uh, but I can um, say a few things. I, mean, I can really talk about this for hours. That's my favorite talk topic in the world. Um, First of all, and most obviously, the law is a social institution and the legal actors within the legal system are human. I mean, for now, I can mention AI if you'd like in, um, in a few minutes. So since the law involves humans and human interaction, then it is necessary to understand how these humans work, how they make decisions, how they think. Um, from the behavioral and psychological perspective, um, and I think my personal opinion is that we have to do that if we want to um, truly and fully understand the legal system. I think that every, every movie would tell you that. I mean, think about famous uh, movie scenes. Um, maybe this reference is a bit outdated, but think about the scene with uh, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise from A Few Good Men when uh, Nicholson shouts, you can't handle the truth. You know, and the witness stand, uh, of course, there's an abundance of uh, psychology there, of human psychology in that scene. Um, or, uh, yeah, I think about negotiation scenes from uh, Suits, Harvey Specter, uh, and so on. And yet the law has been very slow in implementing and in uh, welcoming empirical evidence about human behavior. Very generally, if we kind of take um, and even kind of a more general perspective, the law is a normative field. So it's preoccupied with guiding human behavior and with questions of uh, how people should act 
while psychology is an empirical field focused on revealing what is actually happening and why it's happening. And uh, I think lawyers have used psychological manipulations for years to win cases, and they're fully aware of the behavioral aspect of the legal system. The first question a lawyer asks when assigned a court case, I think, is who is the judge, right? But um, legal theory has been slower in investigating these uh, interdisciplinary issues or interdisciplinary ideas uh, because there was a long-standing assumption that judges are completely rational, that judges are neutral, objective in their decision-making. And um, we uh, know from psychological studies that that's not 100% uh, correct. So I think it very much makes uh, sense to kind of investigate these ideas further. And of course, now we're talking about AI and algorithms to be used within the legal system. But even then, psychology is relevant because algorithms are designed by humans and uh, rely on human uh, data. So I think even then, it's an important interdisciplinary field. Mm -hmm. um, so what's an example of a very discreet um, insight that psychology can give about law that can lead to law reform? That's an ex excellent question. Uh, I think generally psychology reveals um, that our underlying assumptions about the law are not always correct. So for example, if we think that judges only apply the law to the facts of the case, then psychological studies would show us that decision makers are affected by a whole range of factors, including their personal experiences and personal uh, biases. And so an example for an application of uh, what we know about decision-making is uh, perhaps to review uh, the rules regarding recusal of judges, uh, which is um, happening at the moment uh, with the Australian Law Reform Commission review of judicial impartiality. I think that's a very good and uh, contemporary example, but of course the, the list is endless, the list of issues we can investigate from the psychological perspective. Mm. So you've brought up decision-making um, a lot. I think that's probably one of the key areas or one of the easiest to understand areas of um, applying psychology in a legal context. One of the um, reoccurring models of human decision-making is this rational decision-maker model where people um, do a mental calculus of costs and benefits and then make <laughs> the optimal decision on that basis. That seems intuitively um, false just based on lived experience, but what <laughs> does, what's a more um, accurate or um, representative model of how people make decisions? Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? I mean, even when you ask the question, it sounds uh, so funny to even kind of imagine that our decision-making is rational. I mean, you and I know mm. it's not the case. Everyone knows it's not the case. And um, I think that's a big question, kind of what's an, a more accurate picture of how people make decisions. And my answer to that would be that human judgment is more fallible than we think. So 
Well, most of us have good intentions when we make decisions, our cognitive abilities are less than perfect, to say the least. Uh, so for example, human memory is really bad. It's very easy to implant false memories in people. Yeah, these are studies conducted by Elizabeth uh, Loftus a long time ago. So you basically just need to tell people a plausible story about something that um, presumably happened to them in their childhood. And in the end, they will believe it. They will believe it happened. And they would kind of even tell you details about it and would be sure that it happened. So there are endless examples of the limitations of the human cognition. Uh, people have limited calculative abilities. They have limited attention. They have limited time. Um, Herbert Simon coined the term bounded rationality uh, exactly about uh, these things. I can give one more example that is a fun one from the field of uh, mindfulness. And that's a study conducted by Ellen Langer from uh, Harvard, who is a mindfulness uh, researcher. And uh, she showed that people react to the fact that you give them reason for doing something, even if the reason doesn't make any sense, right? So um, in that study, there's someone who approaches people who are about to use a copying machine and um, they ask them to let him or her use the machine first. So in the first uh, instance, they say, I need to use the machine first because I'm in a rush. And in the uh, second um, condition, they say, I need to use the copy machine first because I have to make more copies. I have to make copies, sorry. Yeah, so something uh, that is very senseless and meaningless. Um, and there's also, I think, a condition of kind of no reason at all. And she found that uh, as long as the number of uh, pages that person wants to photocopy is low, so uh, five pages as opposed to 20 pages, people react, they respond positively to the senseless explanation. So just because you uh, provided the reason, people say, okay, I'm going to let you photocopy, even though you say, uh, I want to photocopy first because I have to photocopy. So you're actually not saying anything. And um, there are many kind of fun studies uh, like that, just showing that I mean, what you said at the beginning, that people make decisions rationally calculating uh, cost and benefit, just showing that that's not true. People make decisions in uh, context. They are affected by a whole range of factors. And if we want to be serious about kind of understanding legal decision making, then we have to take all of that into account. And we can, of course, use that uh, as well. So uh, reasoning is a good example because we... Um, uh, give yeah, reasons when uh, uh, we talk about uh, legal judgment. So there could be positives to that as well. Mm. So you're talking before about how um, we have limited capacity to process information and to um, hold on to long-term pieces of information like memory. As I understand it, the thinking now is that emotions are basically meant to enhance our decision-making capacity by making up for all of those um, uh, sort of lacking qualities. Could you just talk a bit about what the role of emotion, what you understand the role of emotion to be in decision-making? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. So it's interesting that you mentioned emotion because when we think about justice or when we think about the portrayal of justice, what, what I think about is about 
uh, Themis, the goddess of justice, who is normally portrayed as blindfolded. So she's um, completely blind to any relevant considerations, any factors um, external to the case at hand. And when you say uh, emotions, my kind of immediate thought is, um, where would that uh, come in? Would these be considerations that are uh, extraneous considerations uh, or not? Generally, what we know from behavioral studies is that people are affected by emotions and are affected by many different factors, some of which are extra legal considerations. Um, but it's difficult to paint an accurate picture of how legal decisions are made and how emotions come into place in practice because even the people who are making these decisions are not always aware of the factors that influence them. So many of these psychological tendencies that we talk about are subconscious and uh, that makes it uh, hard, but we do have studies that give us uh, some clue. Uh, so I don't know if emotions, if that's what you had in mind, but I'm thinking about studies about uh, life experience, which I think could relate, very much relate to emotions. And I'm thinking about the example of the daughter effect. So it was found that uh, male judges uh, are more likely to rule in favor of women in feminist issues when they have one or more daughter. And that effect was found to be most pronounced with Republican judges in the US, which is by the way interesting because most of them have a mom or a female partner, but that didn't have an effect. So only uh, having a daughter. Now, could you classify that as a type of emotion that influence your uh, decision-making? Could that be a positive emotion? Yeah, towards these women because of a familiarity with their own unique life experience? I think it's a fascinating question. Mm. Um, you mentioned the subconscious before. I think it's it's a term that's thrown around a lot in pop culture, but what is the subconscious? So there's the subconscious in psychotherapy, which I'm not going to um, go into. So things that you've uh, forgotten intentionally or not. And yeah, you can kind of talk about it um, uh, in length, you know, in kind of years and years of uh uh, therapy which could be fascinating, but what, what I'm talking about is about a cognitive uh, psychology, and I'm right. talking about uh, biases and heuristics. So I'm talking about uh, cognitive processes that uh, people are not aware of. For example, anchoring. People could be affected by a very random number that has nothing to do with the decision making just because they were exposed to that number prior to the decision. Uh, so it is something that affects their decision. It's a shortcut. Yeah, it's a, if you're thinking fast or slow, it's a, a system one kind of operation, a mental uh, shortcut, um, and it affects your decision making, and you just don't know. You're not aware that it affects you, and it's unintentional. And so because we have all of these uh, mechanisms in place, it's uh, hard to identify what are the specific factors that influence the specific decision maker, because even they are not aware of uh, what influenced them. And of course, on top of that, they're also the subconscious, uh, you know, uh, the psychological, more kind of deep um, explanations for why we are uh, who we are. And again, according to legal theory, this is all uh, left at the door, right? So according to legal theory, judges only apply the law to the facts of the case. And all of this doesn't exist, but the uh, proponents of 
this field of law and psychology would say that it does exist and we should think about it and how it interacts with, um, with legal decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to shift a bit and then probably come back to psychology. But so a lot of your um, recent research focuses on civil procedure and legal institutions. And I wanted to ask why you think this is an interesting area of law to study, because I think, especially when we um, do disputes and ethics, civil procedures sort of seems a Don't bit like say something it. We, have to, yes, <laughs> we have to get through it, <laughs> rather than being something that everyone's excited to do. Yeah. Um, so what, why is it interesting? Give, give your um, argument for why we should be excited. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. So I think procedure has a bad reputation. I agree with you. It's considered to be a dry and technical field, but it's actually one of the most important fields in law. And the reason is that justice can't be achieved without a fair procedure. So procedure involves the practical application of every substantive law. And without application, the law is essentially meaningless. So a procedure is the the very essence of the administration of justice. You can't be a good lawyer and make a good case for your client without understanding procedure. And not only that, there are many principles of procedure that are principles of justice. Uh, One example for this is justice delayed is justice denied. Right? There is no point to find the legal truth, uh, whatever that means, if the um, judgment is given after 20 years, which actually happened in the past. So I'm not making this up. Um, another example from procedure could be uh, lawyers' fees, right? So how much do legal representatives uh, get, get paid? Presumably a technical issue, but actually it's an issue of uh, fairness. I'm trying to think about uh, an example that you might be familiar with. So uh, do you know the movie with uh, Julia Roberts uh, portraying uh, Erin Brockovich? Uh, So she was a clerk who was uh, building a case against a company in California for uh, water pollution. And uh, the results of that case uh, was a settlement in the amount of uh, 300 uh, 33 US dollars, million US dollars, but 133 million of that amount went to the lawyers. Is that fair? That's a procedural question. So I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to leave you uh, to think about, but uh, I think we can agree that it's, uh, it's important and uh, it's crucial. So the way our institutions are built and the way that we administer justice is no less important than the substantive law. If anything, it can even be more important sometimes because the substantive law is uh, meaningless without these uh, mechanisms, without a fair mechanism for the administration of justice. Have I convinced you? (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty interesting um, (laughs) way of putting it. Um, So I remember when I did disputes and ethics, something that came up might've been in our class or it might've been outside of the class was um, the potential role of AI in civil procedure. Um, and well, put this to you since you hinted at talking about AI before, what are the potential applications of AI to civil procedure? Yeah, 
Right. So I think we're still in very early days when it comes to the application of AI in the legal context, uh, at least when it comes to judi- the judicial system. There are other tools used by law firms, um, for example, an algorithm writing a contract. So I will leave that aside because I think the more interesting question is whether AI could take part in legal decision making. Um, and the studies that managed to predict or imitate human judicial decision making uh, were, were limited to judgments and applications that were written in a very rigid format. So they were easy for or easier for an algorithm to interpret and imitate. But I think many legal decisions are not written in that way, uh, which poses a lot of challenges for uh, algorithms, machine learning, uh, AI. So I think, uh, I think it's kind of very early days comparing to other fields. I remember one of the issues that came up in a guest lecture a couple of years ago was that AI probably can't ever replace um, judicial decision makers for reasons that you just suggested then where it can't replicate um, more complex um, decisions, but also because it may be, um, sorry, I've forgotten where I was going with that. I might have to edit this part out. Well, good, okay. um, you want me to talk about language a little bit? Cause I think that's interesting when yeah. we talk about AI. Yeah, so I think one of the challenges in replicating human decision-making is the challenge of understanding language. So a really interesting question, in my opinion, when it comes to algorithms and machine learning is whether algorithms would be able to understand language in the same way as humans. And the law is expressed in language. So uh, that would be a crucial question in going forward. We know that AI can um, you know, write poetry, but uh, does an algorithm write poetry in the same way as a human? And uh, I think there is a crucial difference, uh, difference here. Another uh, point that uh, might be kind of challenging when it comes to using algorithms is the fact that the law is a changing institution. So things that were legal in the past and things that were considered to be moral and ethical in the past are no longer considered uh, moral and ethical and take slavery as, uh, as an example. And that change cannot be performed solely by an algorithm. So an algorithm uses past data and tries to kind of imitate and predict. Uh, but as humans, we try to change as well, right? So uh, there's an element of social change that would be challenging yeah, for an algorithm to take on, but maybe that's okay. I mean, maybe algorithms would be a tool in uh, judicial decision-making, for example, um, a tool that could summarize a lot of data for judges, but uh, would not be the decision-maker. Maybe that's okay in, in our field. Mm. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So AI could potentially be an inherently conservative um, force within a legal context. Maybe, or maybe, maybe not. I mean, maybe, I'm just thinking, maybe yeah. an algorithm, we would have such a sophisticated AI that they would be able to kind of be a member of society and observe 
uh, social change like humans do. Maybe we could have a panel of judges. Uh, three of them are human. One of them is an algorithm. I mean, there are different uh, ways of thinking about it. But it's definitely, we're very, definitely far, so far um, from applying these ideas in our actual legal system. So I wanted to shift to um, an ethics question that I pose to everyone and then talk about ethical decision-making. Um, so the question is, a long-standing and highly valued client approaches you one day and asks you to carry out a series of transactions which would make it hard for an outside observer to track the movement of money. Um, and on its own, the transactions aren't illegal, but are obviously meant to hide something suspicious. What would you do? Oh, wow. Okay. It's a good question for disputes and ethics. Can we steal that for class? Um, <laughs> That's where I stole it from. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think I think I would ask more questions to understand what's behind the transaction. I mean, I think a moral agent has the duty uh, to ask questions and not to ignore uh, something that feels suspicious. So the more interesting question, given your research that I wanted to ask was, um, what factors influence a person's ability to make a good decision in this sort of circumstance? And also, I guess, are ethical decisions different from other kinds of decisions? Is there something inherently different about what happens to somebody psychologically when they make an ethical decision? Mm, wow, that's like a million dollar question. So uh, first of all, one thing that comes to mind when you ask uh, how can we make better decisions is overconfidence uh, in decision-making. So what we do know from studies is that it's important to keep an open mind and to question your judgment. Women, by the way, are much better at this than uh, men. So men suffer more from overconfidence. Uh, basically, if someone tells you they're 100% sure of something, um, and it's not, you know, science, but something to do with judgment, then they're very likely to be wrong. So you should question uh, someone who is very sure uh, of what they say. And when we make decisions, it's healthy to kind of question uh, maybe different hypotheses and maybe try and um, imagine what we would say if we were to hold a different opinion. So I think um, that's very, uh, very healthy. Yeah. Is, is the difference between men and women a physical or a cultural difference? I like, think... Is the cause of it, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the explanation that is uh, normally given is a sociological explanation, so uh, an environmental explanation, not a, a biological one. So uh, perhaps... I mean, it comes up with a lot of studies. The studies I do, I, I always find that the level of confidence in women is uh, lower than the level of confidence uh, men. And women also tend to internalize failures, which is interesting. So for example, this is completely not uh, law related, but for example, if, um, and again, this is a very much a generalization. So it wouldn't apply to all men, wouldn't apply to all women Yeah, by, by no means. Um, but when a male student uh, gets a bad mark on a test, then they would tend to say the test was hard. But when a woman uh, gets a bad mark, then she would say, I haven't studied. 
uh, you know, hard enough. So kind of, so different things like that. And um, it's, it's interesting, but again, it's all, it's a statistical difference, but it doesn't apply to, uh, to everyone. And we can maybe learn from that on how to be a, a better decision maker. Yeah. Um, so the other question I asked was whether there is something qualitatively different about ethical decision-making in particular. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Mm, I, I'm not sure, but I feel like I want to study this further. Um, mm. It would be a cool study to uh, think about. Um, I mean, I'm sure there would be, there are so many correlations that uh, come to mind. I'm sure there would be uh, different factors that come um, into place when we talk about uh, ethical decision-making, such as uh, your education, your personality, the particular context, um, a, lot of, a lot of things that could uh, play a role here. I'll have to think about that uh, some more and come back to you with an idea for uh, a, a study, a study we can conduct together maybe. <laughs> well, if I get paid for it, sure. <laughs> um, okay, so just wrapping up now, I guess. How have you attempted to improve yourself as a lawyer or legal academic? Mm. Um, well, I talk to my amazing co-workers at Melbourne Law School quite a lot, and I try to keep up to date. Um, I read papers written by my brilliant uh, colleagues, and uh, I do try to challenge myself every once in a while. I've done an acting course um, and uh, I did exchanges overseas to kind of familiarize myself with other jurisdictions. Um, I'm doing this podcast as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of um, ongoing and there's always uh, something new and something uh, challenging um, uh, to be done for sure. Mm. Um, okay, so final question that I ask everyone is for five recommendations in terms of books or TV shows, music, anything? Wow, so many. One of my favorite authors is uh, Steven Zweig. Uh, he's a Jewish Austrian writer. He wrote a novel that I love called uh, Beware of Pity, which is absolutely brilliant. He also authored shorter novellas. He has one called uh, Chess Story. Again, also amazing. He really takes you on a journey with the, with the characters. It's kind of um, hard not to continue reading. As for TV shows, I really enjoyed The Good Place. I think the philosophy there is sound. Uh, Shit's Creek was really good, hilarious in my opinion. And what else? An older one maybe, Parks and Recreations. Actually, having said that, I remember spending way too much time indoors when I was in law school. So bearing in mind that many of our listeners are law students, I would probably recommend spending your spare time uh, outside, maybe go uh, forest bathing. I think that's what you do today if you can, or take a deep in the ocean. Um, yeah, maybe breathe, breathe some fresh air. Mm, definitely. <laughs> so I think that was four recommendations there. So four. lucky last. One more. In, in, is there a particular field that I haven't covered? Let's see. Um, I don't think you said anything about music. Music. I've been listening to a lot of Israeli music, so I'm not sure this would be useful for your listeners. Hanan Benari, that's what I've been listening to, I guess. Yeah, I haven't been home in, in a while. So if anyone 
is interesting and I can send them the link on Spotify, but they probably wouldn't understand the uh, the lyrics. <laughs> ah, music is music. Music is music, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show. It's been really interesting talking to you about um, law and psychology, especially. So um, thank you very much. Thank you, Cameron. This was really fun. Well, as I'm sure you noticed, I didn't end up getting rid of that question that went nowhere. In any case, I just wanted to wrap up by saying thank you to Inbal Levy for appearing on the show, as well as to say that hopefully we'll be putting out episodes on a more regular basis again in the near future. We've had a bit of difficulty securing guests for the past few weeks, but hopefully we can have that turned around pretty quickly. Until then, though, I just wanted to say I hope you have a great mid-semester break.